0: Hey, what's going on, guys? Dom the Movie Nerd here, and have you heard the good word? Game of Thrones is back! Well... Not really, but the first official spin-off, House of the Dragon, is set to premiere next year on HBO, and that got me thinking about how Game of Thrones, the number one most-watched show for a decade, just seemingly disappeared from the culture after that god-awful finale. And I wanted to find out why, which is why I'm proud to present the newest hit show from the Talking TV network, Talking Thrones, the new weekly show where myself and friend of the channel, Professor Pat Huber, get together to break down each and every single episode of this hit show. We've got focus character segments, we break down the lore, we go over some old reviews all to get to the question of where did this show go wrong it's a really fun time you guys are not going to want to miss this so head over to the talking tv channel on youtube and spotify to check it out we go live every sunday at 8 p.m eastern standard time audio goes up the following saturday it's going to be a really great time as we once again battle it out for the throne Today's episode of the Talkin' TV podcast, we've got another Pixar movie to talk about. Only six months after arguably like the world-ending Pixar movie that was Soul. And I gotta say, off the top of my head, for, as you know, probably the biggest Pixar fan there is, and for this to, you know, not suck, let's just say, uh, I'm looking forward to this review. I think it's the only thing that I can say like, with any sort of preamble.
1: Chris, what are your thoughts
0: going into Luca?
1: Yeah, man. One of my favorite singers, Jason Mraz, dedicates a song of his called The Remedy to a specific person at the beginning of every live performance that he plays that song. And so today and tonight, I'm going to dedicate this one to my friend Alberto.
0: All this and more on today's episode (laughs) of the Talkin' TV Podcast. So, Chris, I mean, you, you, you got to explain that bit first and foremost before we get into this movie. Like, I, I, I know that was a bit, but like, so what? He's just got a friend named Alberto that he just dedicate. Is it that one song or is it like every performance of his?
1: All right. So it gets a little less fun when you realize the song's about cancer. And the whole thing is like if Jason Mraz could, he would find the remedy to cancer because his friend Alberto has cancer. We never found out if his friend's okay or not. He's just for years. I'm a pretty big Jason Mraz fan. He just for years has been dedicating this song to his friend. And his whole thing is like art can trump all and love can trump all. So he wrote this super positive song to tell his friend like, look, I know this isn't going to fix everything, but it's going to make it a little bit better. And I mean, it's it's strange because there are some messages in the song that kind of line up with like some of the, the messages of this movie with the whole acceptance of who you are, even if other people won't accept it. Like it has, I'd say... Not the same exact vibe, but but parallel sort of moral ideas, and so I just felt like it was the right fit. And just go look up the remedy live, any version of the song he's played live, he does it at the beginning. It's a good sign. All right, I
0: get it. That makes sense now.
1: Yeah, because I was a little bit confused. I'm like, where is this
0: going with this? I thought it was just a funny like name reference because of the name Alberto and everything. But that works. That actually makes a lot of sense. It actually has a lot of feeling to do with the movie that we're talking about. Because people were talking about Pixar again. Like we we talked about Soul uh, six months ago, roughly. As uh, you know, it was both of ours roughly favorite movie of last year. It technically wasn't my number one, but it ended up being our combined number one best movie of last year. And I think it's safe to say, Chris, that like Soul kind of. I feel like, informed you as to the magic of Pixar and how good their storytelling is and what it is about them that makes them so compelling both to kids and adults and what it is that's made their storytelling feel so mature, right? But as you know, me being the world's number one Pixar head, right... I, I I don't care. Somebody come at me to try and take that title away from me. And if anyone says, "Oh, it's even if you you have to like every Pixar universally," I'm like, nah, "Nah, nah, 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 nah." That's not what makes you a good Pixar head. Ultimately, like the th- the whole thing with me is I've been very, very, very critical and very disappointed by a majority of the stuff that Pixar has put out in the last decade as they've seeped into like mired sequel territory and seemingly just went in the complete opposite direction of everything that made them so compelling and engaging with the- these incredible magical stories with these crazy out of the b- so such. As- of the box concepts that would always manage to feel relatable and simultaneously be able to like age with you per se they were kind of like I know we talked a lot recently about like kind of aging with your audience, but this they were really like the first studio to me that like really really captured that so much so that I feel like Disney ended up trying to chase that for the next twenty years, you know, as far as like literally to the point where they just ended up buying out Pixar fully and then incorporating all their writers into the writing staff, which is why you saw an uptick in Disney content, but just the Pixar content just could not seem to keep up, right? And we it was weird because the last couple of years, obviously after Lasseter's departure from the studio, we saw a little bit of like definitely some changes coming in right when Lasseter left and then Pete Docter famously took over right because we got uh, Incredibles 2 was really the last part of the Lasseter era right and then we got Toy Story 4 one year later which while completely unnecessary by design still seemed like it was a step above the previous Pixar content and then we got Onward which still felt a little bit too kid friendly for me and still didn't feel it. it it felt like a step in the right direction but it still didn't feel like it had like all like the magical Pixar qualities then we had Soul which just blew both of our respective socks off as far as that goes. Like we, we like we both know, we both had a whole podcast where we talked about it and just how magical that movie was and just how incredible it was as far as just it seemed to capture everything that it was that made Pixar so good with having this existential quest about like what is the meaning of life while at the same time being like this fun, like kid-friendly adventure with this absolutely gorgeous, incredible animation. And now we have Luca, which is the story w- which seems to be... On the outside, just based on the animation style and the story itself, it seems to be kind of having the exterior appearance of some of those like less good Pixar movies, as far as that goes, right? It's very kid friendly. It's about like, oh, it's a couple of sea monsters and they're gonna go into the human town because when they go on land, they can become humans and everything. And the messaging seems like it's gonna be really obvious, but I don't know, Chris. What were if spoiler free thoughts, what were your thoughts going into Luca?
1: Sure, yeah. So my spoiler free thoughts, um, and and I guess we'll also do my uh my thoughts prior to watching the film, I, I think I was more so confused, and you know this, because I texted you and I said, like I know Disney's got the platform of all platforms, but where's the marketing? Like at least I saw a few pre-roll ads for Bad Batch while I was watching other YouTube videos and at least I saw, like, you know, a, a quick little TV 30-second ad for Loki. Granted, it wasn't even a whole minute, but at least I saw some marketing, albeit light and, and not as full-on as you would expect the machine that owns, I think, 43% of Something the entertainment like industry that. now, like, to, to do. Like, I mean, it's just like, how do you own that much of the entertainment industry and do zero marketing? And then I kind of, in my quest to sort of figure out a reason why, I uh, I stumbled upon like this John Campia video of all places. And while I think he is um, an interesting critic, let's put it that way, um, I I, I really don't agree with most of his takes. I I think he has a good grasp on the whole business side of things. I think that's kind of where he thrives. And basically he was saying, and I thought I, I happened to agree, which is why I bring it up. He was saying that they just don't have to, and also if they're afraid that a movie might not do as good, it kind of helps keep their slate a little more clean. And I was like, "Are they really that petty?" But like when you look at the track record, as he illuminated, it kind of makes sense. But then I then I go into my spoiler free thoughts, and I think, "Well, this is just it doesn't make sense no. because this is actually a solid film. Yeah, like it's it's charming. It's it's." I'll, you know, it's a little. It could have been more built out the world, but I'm able to forgive all that. And and obviously we'll get into it. But I just think, what is this film all about? It's about the characters, and if you connect with them, and I instantly, instantly connected with Luca. Yes. And 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 so from there on, sure, we could have gotten a little more of the sea monster world, and sure we could have gotten a little more of Alberto's backstory, and I also think maybe we could have gotten a little more backstory on. And we'll save this really for the next segment, the setting, which I want to talk about um, very quickly, but also give give some quick detail on. We could have gotten some more backstory on why there is such a divide between the sea monsters and the people. But that didn't really bother me. Spoiler free, it didn't really bother me because the characters and their journey was just so endearing and charming and... I was along for the ride, man. But but what about you? Where, where was your spoiler-free head at? Yeah, cards on the table. I went into this movie fully expecting to hate it, fully expecting it to just cringe
0: at it, for it to just be another obnoxious kitty movie with just a lot of yelling and you know some big-name celebrity voices and a really simple, easy message that just doesn't really feel engaging. So you can imagine my you know because that's just what I become used to from Pixar. And I say that as the world's biggest Pixar head. That is just what I have become used to from Pixar with their myriad of sequels that have come out. How they went from having every one of their movies being these bangers to just, like, putting out two to three, like, sometimes two movies a year and they're just kiddie fair. Like, they put out The Good Dinosaur the same year that they put out Inside Out. Like, how do you do that? But you can imagine my surprise when I freaking love this movie. I was overjoyed to see that... Finally, after so many years in the gutter, Pixar is finally getting back to what it is that made them incredibly engaging. I don't necessarily think still that they're like back to the level that they were previously, but they're definitely continuing to make steps in the right direction because you're 100% right. I was so endeared to these characters. I absolutely understood their qualms, their kind of moral conflicts. I understood... Kind of, you know, even, even if it wasn't like this kind of major grand scale conflict it still felt so inherently personal to the characters in and of themselves. I thought the voiceover talent knocked it out of the park. Props especially to, to Jacob Tremblay, Jack Dylan Grazer, who both did phenomenal with these parts. Jack Dylan Grazer has been on like a little bit of an upswing since he broke out in the first It movie. And uh, it, I, I think it's only going to go up further from here. And Jacob Tremblay obviously has been a superstar at like... Ten years old, he was being considered for an Oscar nomination for Room. Like these two are definitely like uh, these two are definitely future superstars to look out for. And just as far as like kind of the Pixar of it all, I'll definitely say that as far as kind of the ageability of this movie. Before we really break down the specifics of it, I don't necessarily know how well this will do compared to say previous movies. But I definitely think it's got a lot of the ire, let's say, that is made. these Pixar stories so compelling as far as, yeah, it's just, it's a little kid who like gets his first crush and then kind of, but also happens to like be this thing. And uh, it doesn't lean too heavily into the allegorical stuff. And I'll say that's probably to its benefit. And, but you're right. I definitely think there's still a lot more that they kind of left on the table as far as, you know, kind of fleshing out this world. But for as far as it only really resulting in like two kind of micro nitpicks that I have with this, it's still an absolutely delightful time.
1: Yeah, and just real quick, um, my final bit of spoiler-free thoughts to speak to your whole leaving things on the table and um, to its benefit not being as uh, allegorical as it could have been, I personally am always in the camp of that's not really Hollywood's place, right? Like it's the parents' place to educate their kid. And so I think the message needs to be, uh, if it's more on the kiddie side of Pixar and less on the um, existential side like we just saw with Soul, I think it needs to be a little... So more, um, not watered down because that discredits the film, and I certainly don't think this is a film that deserves any of that. But I think it needs to be a little more simplistic and a little more broad, and and, and sort of spark that car ride home or that dinner t- dinner table home after you guys have watched the movie, and the child's mulling it over in the head, and he asks the parents some questions about it. It's the parents' jobs to fill in the blanks there, but the message being about hey. You need to be happy with who you are, and other people might never accept that, but as long as you do, you'll be able to find your your people, or in this case, your sea monsters, who accept you as well, and and that's fine. Not everyone has to like you, and, and you can't force people to do something that they don't want to do. That's just broad enough where I'm like, cool, because I, I hate, hate, hate in children's films when the filmmakers try and pass an agenda. It's like, please, they're going to get enough of that when they grow up. Just Just let them enjoy the moment. And, and just keep it broad enough so, so it's friendly, lighthearted, and a good time. And I, I'm thankful that while other mediums of child's entertainment have done this, I haven't noticed it too much in Pixar, which is cool.
0: Yeah, Pixar's ability to kind of seamlessly blend like those adult themes with these kind of more you know child-friendly dreams. How in Wally, like you get a movie literally about a robot who's just trying to find love, quite literally in the apocalypse, and they managed to seamlessly make that an incredible message about environmentalism while at the same time just having it be about these two robots finding love with each other. And um, and Up, you get this incredible story about like you know this this couple who you literally witness. Their entire lives within a within a fraction of seconds before you kind of have to watch this man literally say goodbye to his wife and then follow him on like the rest of kind of his journey as like an old man. Like Pixar to me is the magic has always been like their ability to so seamlessly straddle those lines between seemingly kitty fair and these really really impactful adult stories that grow with you and. I definitely still think that unfortunately that aspect has been lost I feel like Inside Out and Soul were really the last ones to be able to do that you know while I still love Luca I still don't necessarily think that that's the movie that will continue that but here's the thing right is that if Pixar is going to continue on with this track record of having certain of these movies be slightly more kitty friendly and have their messages not be as deep as some of those other ones but still have the quality to back up the storytelling I'm okay with that you know My, my biggest problem with the Pixar movies that came before was the kitty friendly stuff and I just thought the storytelling in general was just not good enough to justify it you know
1: yeah 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 and then here, here's the last thing I'll say before we jump into our next segment Austin Burke is a, a film critic on YouTube and he did some research via the printed press or I guess the uh, the digital press but you know the typed press nowadays and uh, apparently he pulled a quote from a CNN article that said sorry sad adults who want to reclaim some of their childhood this isn't the Pixar film for you it's actually for children, yeah. and I think that that yeah. is is important to distinguish and and delineate between the souls of the world and the Lucas yeah. of the world here in the spoiler-free <laughs> the, section. The, the, but... only re- the only response <laughs> that I have
0: to that is then get mad at the, don't don't get mad at the adults trying to reclaim their childhood. Get mad at the Pixar movies for making their childhood so rich and existential. Then get mad at them because they're the ones who did it.
1: Right, right they're the right. ones who started so, this whole mess. You guys can have that little. Uh, sort of thought bubble rolling around here let us know what you guys come to conclusions on that's a weird sort of comment it thing is. like asking you guys to comment but it seriously is. let us know it how exactly, that hit you i feel like it's a justifiable um, point it's a justifiable point definitely yeah please yeah. subscribe of course hit the like button turn on the bell for notifications and uh let's let's get into it Dom. Yeah, what's our next topic let's
0: get into the setting which i gotta say that was probably my favorite setting because like pixar the Such a big part of Pixar's movies has always been the magic of their settings, right? The fact that they can make, you know, toys, this entire alternative reality with monsters, an entire world populated by talking cars, rats, robots, all these different, like, crazy, like, anthropomorphic beings, right? Superheroes, fish, and imbue them with so much life and so much humanity, right? And now we're getting into, like, this new phase where they're, like, kind of focusing on, like, the real world. Because this is the second movie where, even though it's included um kind of more fantastical elements in the story the, the story is primarily still set within the human world right first with soul and then obviously we had kind of like the great beyond and now with this and now we have the kind of the world of the sea monsters to occupy but for the most part this is a human uh what's it called the, 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 this is a human focused story and then this is also the first movie forget animated movie in a while right that i mean i mean obviously you know i, I you know, I, I am Italian. It's no secret. I've been to Italy many, many times throughout, you know, when I was a kid and an adolescent. And so obviously for me, it's like, yeah, if, if, if they don't, I mean, the problem is I just I haven't seen too many modern movies that have tried to like actually accurately capture that setting. But like if they don't capture that setting right, you know, it, it just feels completely disingenuous, especially since like uh, I, I feel like of all the, the kind of different world cinemas that have made a comeback in the modern day the italian uh, you know italian cinema is still one that's still trying to definitely make its comeback overall and so you can imagine my surprise when the 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 ac- the accuracy of the feeling of italy right obviously it's you know certain elements are still over exaggerated because again it is a pixar kids movie but you can imagine my surprise when those elements are probably the most accurate Like completely. Like as far as capturing like the beach town village feel, you know, just the feeling of all of the different like, you know, kind of interesting personalities that you can find there. Like with you know, with like the old ladies, with the fishermen, with like, you know, the kind of stuck up bully. Like the look, the feel, the dress, everything was like spot on accurate as far as that goes I was honestly really impressed I think I even made a joke in my review about how I'm like wow this movie got Italy more right than call me by your name did which was like the only other recent movie that like took place in Italy so I was really really impressed by that and I think it actually like benefited the story a lot because like I don't necessarily remember there being like a large part of like Italian folklore about like sea monsters and sea serpents and everything I always kind of regarded that as more of like a like like a Greek aspiration thing but like I think I did a really good job of like connecting that and making that like kind of a part of of the um, a, a part of the story and a part of the character struggles. And I definitely think that as far as, you know, they, they were went out of their way to say that they were making odes to Italian neorealist cinema and, you know, specifically that of Fellini and that the original plan was to have Ennio Morricone score the film before he unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. And while I still think that the, this current guy who did the score, uh, Dan Romer, did an incredible job and I really, really, really enjoyed the score. I'm like, oh my God, my, my mind is spinning with the possibilities of having an, an Ennio calling Pixar score. Like, following up, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross is helping to score a Pixar movie for the first time ever. I'm like, I mean, you're the music guy, as I've said. But like, my mind
1: explodes with those possibilities. No, I woke up and listened to the score this morning. It was so good. It was awesome. It, it, it was awesome. I, I, I loved it. I think it. that if there are any Oscar noms that this movie deserves, it's best original score. And I also think the animation was stunning. Yes. They sort of towed the line between this stop homage to stop motion, although it clearly wasn't, but yet it somehow felt like it was so many times throughout the film, and and it was just kind of like a different palette for Pixar. You know, it was a little more in the pastels, and it. it but the thing is like other films popped more but yet this one had such a unique vibe and look and and obviously all Pixar films have their own unique vibe and look but I just think visually this is one of the very different Pixar films that I've seen in quite some time. And so I think that's why I fell in love with the setting so much because yeah, I'm Italian too and I do have a few other you know, cultures in in my in my uh my back pocket, if you will. But I do think the side that I identify with the most is probably my Italian side. It's kind of the way we celebrate holidays. And it's just, uh, I think, the side that comes through mostly in my family. Yeah, and so oh, it was uh no, no no it's it's cool and 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 the majority of that side being Sicilian like right on the water and uh, you know so for me I was like oh this is pretty cool like it's been a while since we've kind of been here you know and and it's uh it was refreshing to see and you're right I think sort of like the mythology of the sea monsters and all that certainly I do associate it with Greek Culture, but I, I do think that maybe, perhaps, that was more of a nod to the greater Mediterranean region, um, and so I can't say that Italian culture doesn't have those sort of folk tales and stories. I mean, clearly the Greeks were the predecessors to the Roman Empire, who heavily borrowed and built off their culture. But I, I do think you're right when you say that it felt a little more Greek, but but I'm just willing to say, like, because Pixar does such a polite job, I think, of just making something for everyone, maybe that was a little bit of incorporating the, the greater Mediterranean region in there, um, at least the northern side of the Mediterranean region, which I thought was pretty cool, and... Uh, yeah, man, I think the town was beautifully drawn. I think it's it's pretty much what you picture when you think of Italy, those those waterfront, small fishing towns, that the whole economy is built around this one sort of infrastructure. And it's just kind of like, you know, people getting by. I loved how ambiguous the specific timeline was. Like, I'm assuming it was like 50s, 60s. Yeah, doing they, a, a, they, they doing said
0: a, during the marketing, I know for a fact they said 50s and 60s.
1: Yeah, but I liked how we could never quite gather that, you know, it was it was really, because it is like that nod to right. Fellini and uh, that era where he was sort of, you know, doing his thing or, or maybe it just even- it, it, it makes it more timeless, too. It makes it more timeless, and I do love how sort of the environments almost become a character, because not only do I associate really growing to love Alberto and Luca's bond in that watchtower- but i mean that is the home base for alberto i mean that the the background says so much about him it's messy he's foraging he's taking anything he can get just to survive like it, it it's it, it illuminates more about him and i think good settings do that i think And and this is why, and this is what I wanted to talk about here, and then I'll I'll pass it over to you, but I got to get this off my chest real quick. I've been seeing a lot of complaints about Luca's world not being built out, and the story not being fleshed out, and while I do still stand by my criticism of maybe the payoff would have been a little stronger had we known the difference, the rift that has been created between the humans and the sea monsters— I think it was smart that Luca's world was so barren because does he really feel comfortable down there? It seems like since we meet him, he always wants more. And so I think to give us this loving world where he's accepted and everyone wants him defeats the meaning of the movie, right? If it's a movie about finding who you are and feeling comfortable in your skin, why would you show this amazing sea monster society where they all look after each other and it's this perfect shire-like paradise? I mean, Frodo he's got to leave, right? So you got to like make it a little messy. I mean, he has to have a reason to leave and you you can't keep him there. I mean, no one's going to believe that he's leaving this perfect sanctuary if it is like, if it's so perfect. And so I like that we didn't get it built out as much as, as some of the complaints was. I think it, I think again the setting speaks to the character, but but what's your take on all that? No, I'm I'm with you hundred percent on that. I'm I also particularly love the bit, even though it was
0: literally just a one off bit in order to like get him to do with the bit with the uncle, with the crazy uncle who lived in like the deep and <laughs> just like the allusions to like kind of the bottom feeders who are like blind because they literally just don't interact with sunlight now, that kinda of drives them a little nuts. That was just hilarious. But, and clever. Did you see and, the like, end credits scene? No, I
1: missed it. I didn't oh, know there it's not a post credit scene. Th- there's a post credit scene with oh, the uncle. I'll, I'll oh, tell you about it real quick. Right, it's just yeah, yeah. the uncle is just swimming blind. He gets one of those fish that Luca was cattling in the beginning, Giuseppe, yep. the one that was running off. Yep. And he's like, See, I told you it was better down here. You don't need to see anything. You just walk into free food and he eats like one of the whale chunks. And Giuseppe just looks at him like, I got to get out of here. And it's so stupid, dude. It was so dumb. No, but Pixar used to do
0: that kind of stuff all the time. Like, that was, like, they, they would do, like, these little shorts. I remember these one-offs. Like, I remember, like, with Monsters, Inc., when that came out, they did the Mike's New Card thing, and that was hilarious when that happened. Like, they, they used to do that, and, and, you know, because now they're being relegated to just Disney Plus with no marketing. It's, uh, I'll, I'll get into that in a bit, because just as far as that goes. But, no, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Like, it, it actually does kind of build into, like, a few of the nitpicks that I have with this movie as far as I'm, like, I feel like I do need to know more about why the sea monsters are so scared, because it kind of... It's a nitpick, I know, but it definitely does kind of come to like an easy conclusion where it's like, oh, so they're the sea monsters are just kind of there, and they're accepted now, and no sort of anything there. like i I, I know like that it's it's the point of the movie right that they are supposed to be accepted and that it was was kind of all in their heads as far as, you know, they didn't really need to be as scared of the humans as they originally thought. but at the same time, I do definitely think that I'm like, huh. It does still feel like a little bit of an easy solution, but again, I have to bring up the Austin Burke content again, where it's like, again, I know I'm a sad, miserable adult, and I can't have my <laughs> kids. I can't have my kids' content reflecting in that, and I'm, I'm finally coming to terms with that as far as that right. goes. So I get it. I, I don't think it's as egregious as my other kind of nitpick that I have, but other than that, like, I definitely think that like the other thing that I'll be impressed with too which is again it's a thing that i love about italy so much is the minimalism which is that you can get mm-hmm. so much out of so little in this town right like the whole point is the the the, the crux of the movie the third act climax is just a race it's literally it But it feels so engaging and like you're so in it with everything because of everything that's been so built up. It's the thing that made Fellini and the neorealist style of Italian filmmaking so engaging. It's the thing that I love that Aziz Ansari did with the first episode of Master of None Season 2. Which is that it's the seemingly like, I feel like it's kind of what's given us like a lot of like some of the best movies that we love. Which is that these really kind of seemingly like nothing stories. It's just like, oh, it's a dude who's trying to find his bike oh, it's a guy who's trying to win a race, it's a guy who's trying to win over a girl, you know, but they don't need to go to like these bombastically great lengths, it's just like kind of day in the lifestyle, and they just let kind of the everyday elements allow you to tell the story, and even though, again, this still has some of the pop and flash of Pixar, I really, really do give them props for being able to pull that off.
1: Yeah, and it, it also, I think, speaks to more recent uh, Italian cinema, like a great film in Cinema Paradiso, which is just... yes. Dude, that's just the town and Phenomenal it's the people movie. and the setting is just the catalyst to the kind of slice of life journey that they all go on with the theater being burnt down. And then obviously that's such a huge hit and it's just like, man, that's it, it does harken back to the simplistic yet emotional Italian cinema that we've had in, in, in yesteryear and it's it's pretty cool. Like I think it's a solid nod to it and I yeah. think setting has been so important in those films. It, they're almost like bottle films but not really because they're a little bigger than that small contained of a thing but like we never really venture too far out and I think we did a great job in this one as well sort of it's a great homage It's it it really is and the setting is a big part of that in my opinion
0: yeah so that's really the only other point that I had to bring up I I think the only other major nitpick really that I had with it was I definitely think that Luca kind of does Alberto a little dirty when the whole Alberto exposes himself as a sea monster in order to like, kind of like re- make Luca realize, it's like, dude, you they, they are not gonna accept you that way. And then Luca literally just is like sea monster, and, and kind of dicks him over hard and forces him to run away. And then Alberto just kind of forgives him like that, like that, like that's it, like dude, it's like he dicked him over pretty hard there, you know, like he. was... That, that, yeah. that, that, was a nice, that was a stab in the back if I ever saw one you know so like I, I know I know that's like a micro criticism but again like again world's number one Pixar head over here so I, no, that's I, a I, good gotta, criticism. I gotta point it out when I see it that, that it, like I said if I ever had one nitpick besides you know the ending kind of everything seemingly resolving itself like a little bit too quickly that would be my one where I'm like ah, I don't know about that
1: yeah, you know, I will say, while I think it was a really solid film and I'm incredibly charmed by this movie, it's it's not by any means a perfect film. And that's no. a delineation that's important to make, I right. think. But- I
0: feel like that's a good transition actually into our next segment, which is does this hold up to the Pixar level of quality? Like, now, Chris, even though I'll definitely, I know that you're obviously not as big of a fan of Pixar as I am, right, you've definitely still seen a lot of the movies, right? Like, I've seen every single yeah. Pixar movie. I just movie. think anyone our age has. It's true, because we're the we're the generation that grew up with them, right? So, obviously, we're going to be the primary generation affected by it. So, I have only not seen three Pixar movies in my life, and I feel like I'm not missing anything, because they're, from everything I've heard, the three worst Pixar movies. Like, all three of these movies that I missed are apparently so bad that The Ringer, when they did their overall Pixar ranking, wouldn't even count any of these three movies, because they just because like the way that they did it, right, was they gave each movie like a rating from like fifteen to one, and these three movies, that being Cars two and three and the Good Dinosaur, didn't even get any ratings, so they didn't even make the list as far as that goes. So my question is, right, so. Obviously, I've had my Pixar ranking that I've worked on religiously, right? As far as that goes, last year, right? I famously put out uh, my revamped top ten Pixar movies last year before Soul came out, and then Soul came in and actually, you know, bumped one up because Soul ended up making the top ten. As good as that movie was, Soul is still only number six for me on that list. But I wanted to know first off, where kind of your overall like where each of the different Pixar movies kind of rank for you. That you don't have to like go with specifically, just like give like an overall general like overview. And also, does this hold up to you of the level of Pixar quality that has been established?
1: Sure, yeah. I think at the very top you have like the Monsters Inc. and the finding Nemos of the world, and those are pretty untouchable. Um, unfortunately, I don't think Luca reaches the highs that those films reach, but I certainly I don't think it's as low as, let's say, like the Onwards, and I'm, I'm assuming the Good Dinosaurs, and let's be clear, there. even though I haven't seen Good Dinosaur, from what I hear, and the people I trust who have given me their, their notes on it, like you, Dom, there's still a difference between Onward and the Good Dinosaur, yeah. which is off yeah. It's so, I've,
0: I've heard it's not good.
1: But I was thinking about this, because I kind of figured maybe you'd ask. I think it is upper middle tier. It's just yeah, below greatness. I agree. I agree 100%. It's so funny because literally,
0: you know Good Dinosaur is your worst movie when even the fucking guys at Pixar are just like, yeah, we we, we don't talk about that. <laughs> we watched the interview with Mike Jones who was not only one of the three writers on Soul but also helped write this which it makes a lot of sense why but even he talked about it, it's like yeah good dinosaur like we we, we kind of had to scrap that <laughs> and start over but by then it was already kind of too little too late and i'm like yeah that kind of makes sense you know because they kind of they they put all their effort into yeah. inside out that year so good dinosaur quite literally felt like an afterthought in it shows but the way that i have it ranked right because again like i have such a deep personal com- emotion to Pixar like i have each let's call it batch of movies ranked by like where I was in my life so like you have the initial batch right that was like when I was like a little little kid so like your toy story which was before I was even born to your cars which was when I was just getting done with elementary school and like transversing into middle school right and that tier was like God tier, untouchable. The only one of those movies that is like kind of in the middle tier is Bugs Life, and I even still have a soft spot for that movie, but like Toy Story, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, Incredibles, and even the first Cars, I'll give that first Cars credit where credit is due because I still stand by that first movie. Incredible, God tier, like cannot be touched. Those are just like staples of my childhood. Then you have like the middle range when we get into like me transitioning through middle school. Uh, and getting into like early high school, which is like arguably like still some, some of their best ultimately, which is your Ratatouille, your WALL-E, your UP, and your Toy Story 3. All four of those movies still perfect, but there's a reason why I have certain of those movies with the exception of Toy Story 3 um, ranked a little bit on the lower side. Because they just, even though they're by all rights, damn near perfect movies, all of them, I still, that they still just didn't have the same type of impact on me. The way that some of those earlier Pixar efforts did, because I, just, I was already like a little bit older by then. Then we get into the high school age, which is when Pixar starts to steep into sequel territory. So I've blocked out most of those movies out of my mind, but they're still like, they range from middle to garbage tier. Like you have a few ones that stood above the rest, like Monsters University, um, Onward, uh toy story 4 i'll even give credit for for you know for that let you know for that later batch that came that came out even though it's completely unnecessary by design but um what's it called but Luca is kind of in that and then of, of course like i said you have the exceptions right with inside out and soul which are both in top 10 and like way up there and like because they continue to like they bring back kind of what it is that made pixar great originally in combined with like the existential and like incredibly deep messages that they have but this movie I have it ranked at number 14 out of I think it's like 21, 22, I think Pixar movies that I'm up to now. I have it it's not in the top 10, but I have it right in the middle tier right below um, Bug's Life, Cars and Up. Uh, cuz Up got pushed out of the top 10 by Soul. And that's kind of like where it ranks for me. Again, it doesn't have like the god tier quality of, like those earlier movies. It doesn't have like the quality of like say those later 2000s movies, but it's still like a oh, step above like some of the lower tier ones. Like For me, you're, uh, I think it's much, much better than Coco. I think it's light years ahead of Onward. Um, it's Like I said, it, it's obviously better than Toy Story 4, and it's better than ma- a majority of the sequels, because the majority of the sequels, I'm sorry, Brave, Monsters University, Finding Dory, those movies are good, but we could do without them, and then Incredibles two for me is just a complete misfire all around. I, I still don't know what happened with that movie, but that's that that's kind of where it ranks for me personally as far as within like kind of the Pixar canon, for lack of a better word. But I do still think it is a worthwhile installment.
1: For sure, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that that's a solid place for it to land. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it's it could have been greater had we. Uh, uh, I don't normally call for this, but it was a little short, you know? Yeah. I think we could have used a little, just a little bit more of an incubation period, which is strange because we watched that video on how deep Pixar goes. I mean, most films do two or three passes. They literally do five to they six. They five. Minimum five. And so that was a bit... And it's like, listen the message comes across clearly. Oh yeah. It, 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 there's no misconception about what you're getting out of this film. It's, it's beautifully well done. It's just that I, I love this world and I wanted to play in it a little longer. And I think that there were opportunities to stay in it longer to make that final emotional payoff a little stronger, but It's all right, because it's still leaps and bounds better than Onward, which was um, sort of the start of our podcast's Pixar journey. And and I'm I'm glad to see that we've been on an upswing since. And and so I think as far as the whole how does it compare to other Pixar films, my last statement on that is I think you do sort of take away from how good this was when you compare it to the legacy and the legends of uh, Pixar's past i.e. some of the films i named and some of the films you named you know monsters inc the first cars finding nemo i do first think it's a bit stories of, yes i do think it's a bit of an unfair comparison and that's where personally i draw a bit of um a line in the sand between uh you know my style of film criticism and, and some of the the syndrome that youtube has created with everything having to be ranked i, I do think it's a bit unfair but it's the world we live in and it's the rules we play right. by, right? So I just yeah. wanted to bring that up because I think if you guys can separate it from that, this to me it gets more points, and, and rightfully so, because I don't think Pixar makes movies thinking, how is this gonna compare to Soul or compare right. to Onward? No, they don't. So they don't.
0: That, and it's a reason why they've got like that universal bar of quality, even
1: with some of their lesser, you know, liked movies. Totally. Not to discredit your topic. I just think there's another side of thinking to that that I wanted to uh, pose there. But, you know, hey, look, we still have to ask, how does this hold up to the Pixar level of quality? Let us know in the comments below. Give this video a like, please. A thumbs up, please. A subscribe. We've been asking for a lot of subscribes, but hey, it's only because 72% or sorry 62% of your views come from people who aren't subscribed that and right, why is dude, that no 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 no, just continue with that bit just change the
0: number every time just change the number every time okay It'll be that's really good that's fantastic okay do that. oh, so man. there's that's no hilarious. reason
1: that 62% of you should be watching this and not subscribe I mean you're on YouTube already just subscribe please we'd love for you to join us we're friendly we're nice guys join come come sit on our oh, side of the fence Everyone's man. welcome. I, so. I, I
0: think the only real thing that I wanted to—the <laughs> only thing I wanted to add to like your your time because i thought that was a really interesting point that you brought up. Was kind of the whole. I think that's the streaming aspect of it, right? And the thing that there obviously has to be things that need to be cut for streaming purposes. Because I don't know if you knew this, Chris, but back in the day when The Incredibles came out, I think The Incredibles is one of the only animated movies I've seen that's close to two hours. Incredibles an hour and fifty one minutes. It's one of the longest animated movies I've ever seen. Like, as opposed to, like, Toy Story, right, which clocks in at 82 minutes. It doesn't even reach the full hour and a half quality. That, that's hour and 22 minutes, you know, and that, and that movie's still perfect and, like, untouchable as far as Pixar goes. But I, wanna, I brought up this other topic because I thought it was definitely interesting, and I feel like you'll be able to kind of answer so, so some of these in a minute, which is that... So, obviously, we know that when it comes to quality animated storytelling, right, people will always give you its two studios, right? Obviously, you know, Pixar within Disney, obviously... And then Studio Ghibli, right? And the funniest part is that for the most part, those two studios in my mind have always been separated, mostly because again, I only literally started watching Studio Ghibli movies for the first time last year, and I've only seen four of their movies. So, like, I still have a long way to go in my Studio Ghibli journey, right? Where we'll definitely make sure uh, we'll we'll try to have another one of those, uh, but you know, before the end of the year, definitely because uh, like, the the studio is too good. The studio is too good for us to not give comparison, but. I've been seeing a couple things pop up even before this movie came out, like kind of low key comparing the two movies. And I'm like, wait a minute, did I miss something? Were these two studios in like compete, like kind of doing that thing that, you know, movie studios do where they like have that friendly competition with each other where they're silently shouting out jabs at each other? And I never really noticed it, but I was doing some research into Spirited Away. And I saw that Spirited Away, like apparently there were some moments in there that, like, okay, they were like, subtle, like, micro-references to Pixar. I have no idea. I have nothing to validate this. I haven't done enough research. But the thing that I was seeing a lot, a lot here, is that there were a couple... It was literally right on the Wikipedia page where comparisons for this movie, specifically Luca, to some of the Studio Ghibli references. And you brought up a very, very... You you had some very particular feelings towards that. I I wanted to get your take on that, because I'm just... I'll admit, I'm confused overall. Like, there's only one glaring reference to me, but, like, I wanted to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, but real quick before I kind of chime in on it, what exactly did you find? Like, what was the specific sentiment? Okay, so that what's you found? the name? What's the name of the town that they're in? the The seaside town in in Luca?
0: In Luca. What's the name of the town?
1: Um, I, I don't remember off the it's top of Porto, my head.
0: It's Porto Rosso.
1: Okay. What does that sound like? Porto Rosso. I, I There's don't a know.
0: Studio Ghibli movie entitled Porto Rosso.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Um, And
0: and like I said, I wouldn't have paid attention. But the only reason why I knew that is because I've been doing like my research into Studio Ghibli, and like I'm familiarizing myself with the Studio Ghibli canon. And I know that's even though again it's not as big as popular like the Princess Mononoke's and the Spirited Away's and everything. It still like got a decent amount of following. And and when I I saw saw that, I'm like, I'm like that's I'm like something's weird here. This sounds too familiar. So I did my research. I'm like, wait, was that a deliberate? choice as far so, as that
1: goes like so was there any references uh, was this a similar script was this a similar i That's mean what's thing. what's the I- deal with this that's the thing. I don't know. I literally don't know. I don't know if it was just like
0: a thing of where like... Right, they just this might have to be our
1: next Studio gym. We, we, we,
0: we might have to do that because like this, <laughs> if, this is, if this is true and this is a thing, this is going to require a lot more than the amount of time we're putting it into it on this podcast.
1: So the, here's what I'll say because I, I was, I, I you know, we spoke a little prior to going live, but I wasn't privy to the full scope of what you found. So I won't speak to any of this because I think we're going to save this for a later video, a later topic now. But what I will say is... I don't understand the comparison. Even if there are nods, I, I think, sure, that's fine. I mean, this whole movie quite literally is a nod to classic Italian cinema. So, what's wrong with that? You know, and why does there have to be this competition just because they're both animated? It, could it just be two amazing artists from both sides of the world uh, understanding that, hey, we're sharing this medium and both contributing different things to it? That, yeah, why not? I mean, it's kind of like when Japanese artists collaborate with American artists. I mean, you have those types of musical collaborations all the time, and it's not like they're competing. So like, what's the big deal? Japanese bands go on tour with American bands. And, you know, like, <laughs> Japanese filmmakers come over to work in Hollywood, and I'm sure Hollywood filmmakers go over to work in Japan sometimes. <laughs> like, quite literally, movies shoot over there all the time. I I don't get it. It's It doesn't make sense to me why there has to be this adversarial approach to the, um, the zeitgeist right now, the, the way that people are talking about it. Secondly... Studio Ghibli's not really for kids like like some of their films are, but like for the most part, I think their audience is more YA to uh, to adult. And I think there's a clear distinction in sort of the depth of what you're able to get out of like, uh, you know, um, what's the most recent one we just did? Children of the Fire Graves, right? Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah. Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah. Like that is clearly not a kid's film. Sure, it looks like one, and it's soft like one, and Lucas certainly has the same softness in the visual style and and the feel, but the messaging is so different. So I, I, I don't understand this whole reason to compare them. I think that they're both uniquely contributing something beautiful and amazing to animation. And when I say both, obviously Pixar and Studio Ghibli. And I think it makes sense. Like Creators in a certain field, like me, the type of music I make, I have my inspirations and I have the artists that, no matter how much I think I'm doing something original, and, and it's certainly original to me, there's always that little touch of, like, the Eagles or of Billy Joel or someone in there that I've just listened to so much and I respect so much that I just can't get them out of my, like, creative DNA. So I, I just, I, I don't understand it. I've been seeing a lot of critics, like, almost speak about it like it's, it's a bad thing, which is strange. Sure, you can acknowledge it, and there's some of that feel, like... This is definitely very much so how Studio Ghibli loves to pair up two little kid characters and have them grow together through, like, you know, outstanding circumstances. It has that, but then so many other coming-of-age stories do as well. And so just because Studio Ghibli is, like, the Japanese coming-of-age animated studio, does that mean they instantly get the comparison? And if that's the case, where was the comparison for Onward or, you know, so many other films? I just... It's it's a strange reach for me. It feels like it's reaching. I, I don't know, like am I crazy? Like you could be honest. So
0: you're not crazy, definitely, but I think I, I, I just looked up I was looking up a few articles. This is piquing my interest too much. I'm like, okay, I gotta figure it out. So as far as the creative and specific creative elements, I can't necessarily comment on, but I did find an article on Polygon that kind of made me remember some things from recent film history. That I had forgotten about. And I, I won't go into too many details, but obviously, we're famously aware of the whole Harvey Weinstein Princess Mononoke thing, where Harvey Weinstein famously wanted to edit down Princess Mononoke, and Miyazaki famously sent him a samurai sword with a note on it that said no cuts. And that resulted because Damn. and I forgot about this. Disney was the one that was handling the American distribution for all of the Studio Ghibli films in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I just found out this other tidbit here. Guess who it was that me after the whole encounter with Weinstein thing, because again, it's the whole thing with Weinstein, right? Everybody hated him. They just played ball with him because he was one of the most powerful people in Hollywood up until a few years ago. And um, so there was another person who Miyazaki and Studio came to in order to try and market their next big movie that being Spirited Away and O2, and guess who at Disney that was? Bob Iger? John Lasseter, the head oh, of Pixar. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, okay. So, um, what's it called? Lasseter was already becoming a pretty big power player at Disney at that time, and Lasseter was actually pretty on board with the big marketing of it, um... And supposedly that's why, um, what's it called? That's why Spirited Away got the big American push that Princess Mononoke was so missing because Lasseter was the one that was going to bat for him at that. So that's that's why. That's where the connection that's where the connection comes in ultimately. And then it just goes on for There's still a lot more involved with it, definitely. Like there's a whole lot more of this history, but that oh, makes sense. That's that's why, that's where the comparisons are coming from.
1: Yeah, sure. And like I said, like my issue is more so with like the adversarial approach that a lot of right. critics are taking when speaking about the uh comparisons or similarities. It's really
0: sounding more like a thing that like picks critics are just trying to generate in order to like just get clicks and views. I don't think it's actually there.
1: It does, yes, I agree. I don't think it's actually there, but I mean, hey, what is Luca? It's a celebration of another culture's film history and another region and sort of doing what Pixar's been doing lately, which is like pretty much what all the Fast and Furious films do, which is start off in a different place and show a little bit of that culture. And Studio Ghibli is clearly one of the main studios that showed Americans a def- definitely a different side to filmmaking and definitely a different side to animation. And uh, hey, because of, I think, Studio Ghibli, it's the reason the anime tv series that americans consume more of which is actually a fact than than japanese uh, actual japanese citizens do i think studio ghibli kind of opened the floodgates along with like some of the older animes and uh yeah so i i I think like if it has to be there i think it's definitely not like this aggressive i'm trying to like you know poke and prod you to be the better i I don't think there's a competition it's not
0: that it's not that,
1: but so I'm glad that we we definitely like started to address this, even if we don't necessarily like come
0: to a conclusion on our thoughts. It's definitely necessary as far as that goes. It definitely sets up. Uh, I think what could be a couple of interesting podcast topics down the road. But let's. Uh, but, but again, what are, what are your guys' thoughts on kind of the Studio Ghibli versus Pixar of it all? If anything, let us know your comments and thoughts below. We'd definitely be really interested to hear your thoughts. It could contribute to some interesting topics that come up later on. Let's get into our final topic though, which is, oh man, Chris, we've been trying to understand, and you shed a little bit of light on it earlier on uh, at the beginning of this podcast, but we got, we got to address it, which is why doesn't Disney market anything? I swear to God, I literally made this comment to some friends of mine since the beginning of the year, 2021, post WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier, which they put a lot of marketing behind and a lot of hype behind. I swear to God, Chris, I have seen marketing and trailers for two of the... 18,000 pieces of Disney IP that we have coming out this year and that is for Loki when they were marketing that and even that was minimalistic compared to WandaVision and Falcon Winter Soldier and all the trailers for Kuella and that was it. I didn't see a, we didn't see a single thing for Raya when we were talking about that a couple months ago. I you're right like I saw the trailers for Bad Batch and Luca but who else did? I I had to remind my friends of like yeah Bad Batch premiere. They were like wait, what? And then when they went back and rewatched it they're like yeah, this is fucking awesome. I'm like I know. But it's like so you you talked about that a little bit, so I definitely want to use this last segment in order to like kind of really break down some of those points that you brought up. Why is it that Disney doesn't feel the need to market a lot of their stuff anymore?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, basically it's all speculation. We don't have any specific facts. So just know that this is just our opinions. Nothing's concrete or set in stone. And when I referenced John Campia earlier, that was quite certainly his speculation. I personally, though, trust him as a source when it comes to the the way media works and the way media conducts itself, just because of how long he's been doing it and because of his insider connections and his ability to sort of predict more so correctly than not based off what I've kind of learned about him being a fan for the past year now and learning a lot from him and in the way that like he breaks down the box office and all that but again it's it's all just speculation they haven't released anything hard about it the only thing I will say is maybe what they're thinking is word of mouth is more powerful than any ad. I mean, people are so prone to click off of ads these days. We have that five second countdown on YouTube and we instantly all hit skip. I mean, I think you're a psycho if you watch the whole thing. (laughs) Unless it's like, dude, my leg's really hurting and you're telling me you have a pill that's going to fix that right now, I might not skip this ad. But unless it's like that, like the perfect circumstance everyone's skipping ads nowadays especially our generations so maybe they are maybe marketing backdoor marketing is what I like to call it through giving everyone a screener and by understanding that their word of mouth is going to be stronger than anything that they could possibly push on the social media but I also think you know because I did look it up there are still billboards for Loki in major cities but like from, from what I understand, the the Luca sort of um, non-social media advertising has been a bit thin. Um, Cruella got a huge push, but like Raya and the Last Dragon didn't really get that big of a push. Like there was no on the side of buses in Hollywood. There was no sort of like graphic sort of, uh, what do they call them, decal like there was for Cruella or there was for like Loki. Um so I just, I don't know how they're choosing. And this is really my, my thing here. It's like, how how are they going about choosing what to market and what not to market? Because they chose to market this most recent Star Wars trilogy, yet they should have been marketing the Clone Wars final season and the Bad Batch, because clearly that's the better received and, better and more celebrated section of Star Wars right now. So they made the wrong choice there. Of course, not really, because like... The Last Jedi is one of like, I mean, sorry, Force Awakens is like the highest grossing Star Wars film of all time. Uh, Of course, you know, you you adjust for inflation and all that, but like it it still is. And it's crazy to see how how they still succeed when we cannot, from uh, an academic standpoint, dissect the method behind the madness. Yet it still works out. It baffles me.
0: Yeah, it's confusing to say the least, especially when it, it, I don't know, like it just, it always seems to me that the marketing always seems to go behind. Either the big Marvel things that are already gonna have the guaranteed success because it's Marvel, it's the most talked about IP like ever, like on anything. Like you literally like well, if if you want to get like five followers on YouTube, talk about something related to Marvel. You know, it's just like it's just it's just known at this point. It's a common sense thing, and it always seems like the things that they just don't give a shit, seemingly perceived, don't give a shit about with marketing, always turn out to be the best. Raya was fantastic. Bad Batch is fantastic. Luca, well, not I don't think having, like, the level of those is still unbelievable as far as, just like, how charming it is, and it just, it's beyond frustrating for me personally as a fan when it just seems to be happening, you know, when it's just like, oh, this is just more fodder for their streaming service, and specifically with this movie, what infuriates me more is the fact that, so, wait, so Raya, because that's the Disney drop, even though that gets no marketing, and Cruella and Black Widow, they all get the thirty dollar, like, oh, pay the thirty dollars to watch this now as opposed to waiting a couple months when it's free. But Luca and Soul before that, those just get dropped for free? That that
1: yeah.
0: I'm I'm having a little bit of a problem like reconnoitering I, myself with that.
1: I was gonna say Soul only got marketing after like the first week when it became such a viral success. I really think Disney is the perfect example of why we have antitrust laws because it's like, dude, you just bought Pixar to kill yeah. the competition or at least have the competition work for you. And sure, that's that's fine and legal as of now. But I mean, like I said earlier, I think they own something like of the entertainment industry. I know for a fact when we started our film college career back in 2016, they owned 33%. It's like a crazy 10% increase in less than 10 years. There's, Mm -hmm. I mean, how much more can they own? There's only 47% left, and they're already approaching owning half of the entire thing. It's it's ridiculous. It's crazy to me. And 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 the craziest
0: thing about Pixar. Specifically, just to that last point, is the fact that that was probably one of the more amicable purchases as far as that goes. Because the whole thing with Pixar is when they officially came into full ownership of them, right? When Bob Iger took over as CEO after Michael Eisner in 2005 and they oversaw the merger, Pixar had already been making movies in conjunction with Disney for like five, six years by that point. Back in 95 when they did the initial three-picture deal to do Toy Story, Bugs Life, and Toy Story 2. And then they ended up doing two more for them before Disney fully bought them and then Cars was the first official one like it wasn't like a Lucasfilm thing where they kind of paid George Lucas so much money that he kind of uh, that he kind of had no choice but to grin Barrett and then kind of you know take his exit amicably and then we saw what happened there and the and, and the Marvel purchase right that's the one where it's like we still know kind of the least about how that happened but it's only been beneficial to both parties as far as that goes you know but so that's what I don't understand why they they seem to be doing Pixar the dirtiest and it's like why are they getting the lower regard as opposed yeah. to like their own animation like that's what's an, that's what's kind of annoying me again I'm biased because again again Said it 15 times, I'm gonna keep saying it, number one Pixar head over here, but, like, come on!
1: I mean, I, I think my personal palette it leans more towards the Disney animation side of things, your Riot and the Last Dragons and your Zootopia specifically being my favorite animated film of recent years, but I do think that the charm and the life lesson and the the, the, the true nostalgia that we felt watching Tarzan in the theaters and, you know, going to see the first Toy Story, at least for me in the theaters. Like, I, I, not that I remember it too clearly. I was so little, but I, I think back to those times when I watched Pixar. Whereas with the Disney animation, it's a little more adult themed. So there's a magic there that I think a company like Disney would want to promote. And again, it's like the Pixar brand is so strong. They don't really need to market it, they don't really need to promote it. But it just makes you wonder are they. How do I say this? Are they more so hoping for the lucky at bat with Pixar, and and and, and are they just sort of it's like the child they're they're ignoring? Are, are they just like okay, well he'll do fine, you know he has the skills, and we need to put more attention over here, but then again, like over time, will will Pixar begin to suffer, you know if they can't you know rake in profit, like will it be on Disney's fault if let's say we we have more Onwards than we do Souls? And a flop after a flop after a flop. And then it's like Disney starts reevaluating them. And they're like, is this still a worthy acquisition when our deal's up? Or do we just, like, you know, what do they call that? Do we uh, break up the department and spread them just across Disney animation? Like, because if, if I think it's at this point, it's if, if Pixar fails, it's on Disney. So it's strange right. to me why they wouldn't want oh, to market it on and carry that the- brand forward. That's what I'm trying to say. So it's just strange no. to me why they're ignoring it. Like it no, makes yeah, sense yeah, ignore I'm, I'm, a little Star Wars animated show like Bad Batch, I guess. It's kind of just content for it's Disney stupid Plus. Stupid. And right, it just happens ass and to be I, that but I get it. Yeah, it just happens to be that Feloni is a masterful craftsman, which check out our right. variety stream from last Friday, know, we and, get into and, that, but I don't know. It's strange, dude.
0: It, it, it's just with, with Filoni, Filoni's the exception to the rule because everything that he touches turns to gold, right? He had, and also because, again, this is his bread and butter. He literally had like past like almost damn near 20 years now of being in the animated realm going all the way back to 05 with Avatar, you know? So he, that's his bread and butter as far as that goes. So it, it's understandable why. But as far as the Pixar thing, no, you're right, man, as far as that goes. Like if, if, if ultimately like Pixar, Pixar is going to Pixar, you know, they, they've, they've had a working formula for over 20 years now. They're not stopping that anytime soon. So if they fail, it will 100 100- be on Disney, and what's going to piss me off is that if and when that does happen, first of all, I'll just be crushed as, again, the number one Pixar head, but I'll also be crushed because it's like, wow, because, no, they're going to heat that on Pixar by saying they didn't put out a quality movie when we know for a fact that's not going to be the case because it's going to be on Disney for not doing shit with marketing it.
1: Time will tell. It's strange. Time will tell. I, man. I mean, I'm not seeing tell. people speak about this outside of our community.
0: Of, of course not, because people just in general like don't talk about this stuff, when they talk about their movies. But again, it's the stuff they need to talk about if they want to keep seeing their movies that they love. But with that being said, tell us what you think about Disney's refusal to market certain of their products, and let us know which of their products you'd like to actually see marketed versus some of the stuff that they are choosing to market. Again, I haven't heard too much about Cruella. I've heard people like it. Again, I've officially boycotted all future Disney live action products, so I'll never be the one to say. But let me know in the comment section below if that one was actually worth you know the giant marketing push that it got initially. But uh final star ratings and thoughts?
1: Yeah, let's get into it. I think I am gonna have to go with uh a four on this one. I, I think it just deserves it, you know? I, I, because like I said, I, I didn't see a need to flesh out the parts of the world that they chose to not show us. I think that would just defeat the Luca character. And so I think the setting was so important in this movie and I think they nailed it, they literally made it a character, and it just enhanced and enriched the scenarios that Alberto Luca were going through, and man, it was charming, it was fun, it was, like you said, a great homage to classic Italian cinema. Thankfully, I went to film school, and I was exposed to something that I wouldn't have sought out prior, and I was really glad I was able to get that aspect out of it as well, and it's just like, it's a good movie, it's, it's, because the bar is set so high from Pixar that might discourage a few people but I, I just I ask you to take it at its to take it for what it is and enjoy it because it's definitely meant to be enjoyed so yeah it's a 4.0 for me
0: yeah the final thoughts that I have on Pixar while well, again I'll always have this extremely I'll, I'll call it like attachment to Pixar that I don't think will ever kind of be fulfilled by any of their new movies I'll definitely say that as I'm over, for the stuff that I love the, th- the things that I'm always looking for what I love are kind of the evolution and kind of how the the next stage that they choose to go to as far as they go and this to me is the next continuation after Soul that shows okay they do have a life going forward and they do actually like are going to be able to expand and incorporate some of these new stories and new story tactics and new story elements while continuing to have some of like that old school Pixar fun, you know, because that to me was what it was. I didn't really need to like do that super deep of a review for this one because again, it was just, it was a fun, delightful summer movie, you know, it, it, it helped that it took place in like this gorgeous tropical side town and it came out in the middle of June, right, it is the perfect just summer feeling if you want to just relax and have a summertime, you know, I watched it on, on a Friday morning when it dropped and I had an absolute blast with it, right? It was the same thing to me when inside out came out. Like I haven't really gotten like a good fun Pixar summer movie since inside out. And that's exactly what the, what I got, what, what this gave to me. Well, I don't think it necessarily hits kind of the existential heights of inside out soul or any of their other, like kind of a class here. It's still, I think leagues above some of their other more recent kitty fair. I'm with you. I'm giving this four out of five stars.
1: Nice. Very cool. Well, yes, dumb, indeed. uh, I know you have to to bounce sooner than later. So why don't you tell the people I do, yes. before we go where they can keep up to date with us and our many they happenings? Can find,
0: they can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Talking TV Podcast to so stay up to date with everything that we've got going on this week, people. It's the end of the journey for us pretty much. Fate of the Furious first time watch coming out on Wednesday. That's going to be interesting. Stay tuned for our next variety show of course on Friday. Our episodes of Talking Thrones are continuing to drop on Sundays. This past Sunday we talked about the pointy end episode 8 of season 1 of Game of Thrones and continue to stay up to date with us and all of our podcasts and everything we put out on our YouTube channel by clicking the subscribe button and the bell next to it and leaving a comment below. Thank you guys once again so much for continuing to be on this journey with us. Chris, where can the good people find you?
1: yeah they can find me on all those same social media platforms you can find our podcast the talking tv podcast i am at christian Ivanko, Ivanko spelled e-v-a-n-k-o i'm a musician and you can find my music through the link in my bio and you can also find my other podcast talking with andrew and chris talking spelled the same way we spell it right here on this show through the link in my bio i hope to see you there dom where can they find you
0: and Movie Nerd Reviews on Facebook and Instagram. I won't go into it too much of a diatribe about where you can find me. But as always, people, remember 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies. Arrivederci. I'll see you guys next time.